0: So did you get to see your fireworks this year? I know it's a little different year for a lot of us, the way that we're not able to be with people in the way we normally would. But the Fourth of July is often that fun time. It kind of breaks up our summer where we get to enjoy being with family. maybe we have a cookout, uh, we eat the good summer food, We get to go watch fireworks with friends and neighbors. It, it's always such a fun celebration and It often reminds me of so many of the unique gifts that we have growing up in this country of ours, but you know, even as I'm filled with gratitude for those gifts and for the beauty of this land that we live in, I also often get a little uneasy by what I see in in many Christians about this time of year. Because what often happens is that the church in America starts to slip from gratitude toward adoration. And as we slip down this continuum, our hopes and our aspirations become more and more entwined with our country and less entwined with God. In fact, the two start to take the place of one another. And pretty soon, we're not able to really even tell the difference between our Christian identity and our American identity. And truth be told, it looks pretty harmless on the surface of things. It's just good people, loving God and country, some family, some neighbors. But you know, as a pastor, I have watched how it's often the most subtle things in our life that is hard to even notice that can create some of the deepest rooted idols. And the honest truth is, flag and country have often become an idol for the Christian church. Throughout our history, it's not just true in our time and place, it's, it's this pattern that has a long, a long history in Christianity. A few years ago, I told you about George MacLad, this Scottish, Scottish Presbyterian pastor who helped to rebuild the abbey in Iona that I got to visit a few years back. And MacLad, he was this really sort of rough and direct person, and he had a number of sayings that he would repeat all the time. And one of them was the way that he would go up to someone in Scotland and say, well, are you a Presbyterian? or are you a Christian? Now, you may not know this, but Scotland is more or less the birthplace of the Presbyterian church. So George McLeod's time in his time that almost every church in Scotland was Presbyterian. In fact, to be Scottish was to be Presbyterian. So McLeod, his question wasn't really funny. It was challenging them to make this distinction that most people would never think to make. And it kind of had this edge to it. Well, what's the difference? Someone might say. Are you a Presbyterian or are you a Christian? McLeod would ask. And it was sort of his way of asking, do you know the difference? His way of saying, you know, the really, they aren't the same, so which is more important to you? Which is shaping how you see this world, and and how you see your particular life, and which has your deepest identity. It always had this really unsettling edge to it, and it has me thinking that if McLeod was a pastor in our time and in our place, I think he would ask a slightly different question. I think he would ask something more along the lines of, well, are you an American, or are you a Christian? And that's kind of a distinction that makes us feel a little funny, doesn't it? But it is an important question for us to ask. I mean, where does our deepest identity, our deepest commitment lie? Are you an American or are you a Christian? Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the two are are mutually exclusive, but they are different, aren't they? And when it comes down to it, what is good? for American strength and power and security is not always good for the kingdom of God. And when it comes down to it, the way of following Jesus will at times conflict with the way of the flag. So it's really important then for us to have some things kind of clear in our hearts and in our minds. I mean, deep in our hearts, When those conflicts happen, will we recognize them? Will we know, are we an American or are we a Christian? It's a question I've often pushed us to ask this time of year, and it's the reason that I like to remind us of the sermon that Jesus preached about the values and the ways of the kingdom of God, a sermon that we we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Many have referred to the Sermon on the Mount as the constitution of the kingdom of God. So as I have done other times about this time of year, I wanna invite you to listen again to Jesus's words deeply with an open heart. And as you listen, ask that question that McLad would ask of us. Am I an American or am I a Christian? Where does my deepest value. My deepest commitment lie. The following is taken mostly from the message version of the Bible. This is Matthew 5 through 7. When Jesus saw that his ministry was drawing a huge crowd, he climbed up on a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed up with him. Arriving in a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions, and this is what he said. You are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and God's rule. You are blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you, because only then can you allow yourself to be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less That's the moment you find yourself a proud owner of everything that cannot be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. God is food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care deeply. At that moment of being full of care, you'll find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right because then you can begin to see God in your outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your deep commitment to God provokes persecution That persecution will drive you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, but count yourself blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens and give a cheer even for though they don't like it, I do and all heaven applauds and and know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into that kind of trouble. Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and you'll be end up thrown in the garbage Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. Uh, If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? No, I'm going to put you on a light stand. So now that I've put you on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Shine. Keep an open house. Be generous with your lives by opening up to others. You'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Now, don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish the scriptures, either God's laws or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish them, but to complete them. I'm going to put together all all of it into a vast panorama. God's law, you see, is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground under your feet. So long after the sun burns out and the earth wears out, God's law, God's ways will be alive and working. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's laws and you'll only have trivialized yourself. But take it seriously and show the way for others and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better than the morality police in matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom of God. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. Well, I'm telling you anyone that harbors anger against a brother or a sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly curse a brother and you might just find yourself hauled into court thoughtlessly tweet bitterness at a sister, and you're on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. This is how I want you to conduct yourselves in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and you're about to make an offering and you suddenly remember a grudge that your friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave it immediately, and go to the friend and make things right. And then, and only then, come back and work things out with God. Or say you're out on the street and an old enemy comes up to you. Don't waste a minute. Make the first move to make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court, maybe even jail. If that happens, you won't get out without a stiff fine. So make the first move in reconciliation. You know the next commandment pretty well too. Don't go to bed with another person's spouse. But don't think that you have preserved your virtues by simply staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. And let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If, if you want to live a morally pure life, you have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one eye or else be dumped on the moral trash pile. And you have to chop off that right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly at someone. Better to have a bloody stump than your entire being discarded in the dump. Remember the scripture that says, whoever divorces his wife, let him do so legally, giving her divorce papers and her legal rights? Well, too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you are following the rules. You can't use legal cover to mask moral failures. And don't say anything you don't really mean. The counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down this smoke screen of pious talk, saying things like, well, I'll pray for you and never doing it, or saying, God be with you and not really meaning it. You don't make your words more true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that getting us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand up strong. And if they hit you again, they will be striking a blow to their own reputation. If someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, embarrass them by gift-wrapping your best coat and making a present of it. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Give to those who ask. Live generously. You're familiar with that old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy well, I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is, after all, what God does. God gives God's best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In other words, what I'm saying to you is grow up. Your kingdom of God's subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way that God lives towards you. Be especially careful, though, when you're trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It, it might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding when you do something for someone else, don't call, your, uh, don't call attention to yourself. Uh, you've seen them in action, I'm sure, those play actors, I call them, treating a prayer meeting in a street corner like a stage, acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, sure, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks, just do it, quietly and unobtrusively. That's the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. And when you come before God, don't turn it into a theatrical production either. All all these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet place A secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God and just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. And the focus will start to shift from you to God and from God back to you and you'll begin to sense God's grace flowing and moving. I mean, this world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are really prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling these techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your loving Father you're dealing with. God knows what you need better than you do. With a God like this loving you, you can pray really simply like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today just what we need for today. Forgive us for the messes we make and help us to keep forgiving others. Don't let us be hooked by temptation and the power of evil. This is your world. You have the deepest power. You are beauty itself, the desire of our lives now and always amen. You know, in prayer, there's a connection between what God does and what you will do. You can't really get forgiveness from God, for instance, when you're not willing to forgive someone else. If you refuse to do your part, you're cutting yourself off from God's part. Or or when you practice some appetite-denying discipline like fasting to, to better concentrate on God, don't make a production out of it. It It might turn you into a small-time celebrity, but it won't make you a saint. So when you go into training spiritually, inwardly, act normal outwardly. God does not require attention-getting devices. God will not overlook what you're doing. Don't hoard your money down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust, or worse, stolen by burglars. Instead, stockpile your treasures in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place where you will most want to be and you will end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills with light. But if you live squinty-eyed in greed, and distrust, and skepticism, your body becomes a dark cellar. If you pull the blinds down on your windows, what a dark life you will have. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You cannot worship both God and money. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There's far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach and more to your outer appearance than the clothes that you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down by job descriptions. They, they are careless in the care of God and you count for so much more than birds. Has anyone by fussing in front of a mirror ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but have you ever seen color and design and beauty quite like it? the 10 best-dressed men and women in the country, they look shabby alongside the wildflowers. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think God will attend to you, take pride in you, do God's best for you? What I'm trying to do here is, is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's great giving. People who don't know God and the way that God works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how God's work, so steep your life in God reality and in God initiatives and in God's provision. Don't worry about missing out because you'll find that your everyday human needs will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not even happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come when the time comes. So be present to today, to what God is doing right now. Now, when it comes to others, don't judge them. Don't jump on their failures or criticize their faults or make assumptions about their motivations, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit, it has a way of boomeranging back to us. I mean, it's so easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to that ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash that face off for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's the whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing holier than thou instead of just living your part. So wipe that ugly sneer off your own face and then you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. And when it comes to the sacred, don't be flippant or dismissive. Banter and silliness, don't give honor to God. Don't reduce The great mysteries of God down to a slogan. In trying to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. Don't bargain with God either. Be direct. Ask for what you need. This isn't a cat-mouse and game, a hide-and-go-seek game we're in. I mean, if your child asks you for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? Or if he asks you for a fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? No, you wouldn't think of doing such a thing. And you're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think the God who conceived you in love will be even better? Here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. And then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's laws and prophets and that is what you get. Don't look for shortcuts to God, by the way. You know the market is flooded with the surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, the way to God is vigorous, and it requires our total attention. So be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off in some way or another, so don't be impressed with their charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned Knowing the correct words, saying, Master, Master, for instance, it really isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What's required is serious obedience, doing what my Father desires. I I can see it now in the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preach the message. We cast out the demons. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use my name to make yourself important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. Now, I know this is a lot to process, but take it all in. These words that I speak to you today are not incidental additions to your life. They're not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words words to build your life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who builds his house on a solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit it, but nothing moved the house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and you don't actually work them into your life, You're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on a sandy beach. When the storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd of peasants and beggars, the crowd of the spiritually thirsty, the crowd of the moms and dads and children tired of religious hypocrisy, burst into applause. They had never heard a teaching like this. It was apparent that Jesus was living everything he was saying, quite a contrast to their religious leaders. This was, in fact, the best teaching they had ever heard. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.